Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 26, which is also on page 8 of your bulletin. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is God's word. We're beginning a new series, and it's really two mini-series about the vision of Metro Presbyterian Church, and we're talking about the values, some of the values that drive our church, one being creativity, the other being community, and those two series, in between those two series, before we start them really, I always like to begin with a small intercalary or a small uh, series or, or sermon that reminds us about what brings us all together, and that's the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today, even though we're really talking about, we're entering into a series about creativity, um, I'm going to, again, bring us all together and talk about the gospel. What is the gospel? And what does it mean to be gospel-centered? And there's no better passage that I can think of than this one. This is pretty much my favorite passage in the Bible. Um, Somewhat obscure, I guess. Um, Some of us who've grown up in the church may have read this text several times, but um, it's a revealing passage where Jesus talks about finding yourself, spiritual finding. He says, if you do this and this and this, you're going to find it. Find what? Verses 25 to 26, pretty famous passage in the church. Um, I'm going to just read it very quickly. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? The words life, the word soul there, uh, mentioned about three or four times here in this passage, is the same Greek word, psyche, where we get the word psychology. And the translations use different words to help us understand what Jesus is really trying to tell us here, but it decreases the fact that that one word is being used prominently throughout this passage. And, uh, and, and so it's a very rich word. But basically what he's saying is this. Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you the key 
to finding yourself. Here's how you find yourself. Here's how you connect with who you really are. You want to find your potential? You want to find your life? You want to recognize and experience how many options you have? What kind of freedoms you have? Well, there's, and there's no more urgent topic or issue in the modern world today than that? He says, I'm going to tell you how. Ernest Becker wrote uh, several seminal pieces of work in his life. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author um, and a psychologist in many ways. And he wrote this book called The Birth and Death of Meaning. And here's what he writes. He says, most of our life is in large part a rationalization of our failure to find out who we really are, what our basic strength is, options, potential, freedom, right? What thing it is that we were meant to work upon the world. In other words, the majority of our lives, there's this disorientation. What drives most of our issues in life, why we're angry, why we're bitter, why we're fearful, why we're so competitive, you know, why we are so uh, protective of ourselves, defensive. We don't know who we really are. We don't know. And the answer, he says, you can't find these answers in psychology. He's a psychologist, Ernest Becker, um, who proclaims in his own words that he is a secular man. He says, most of our lives are in large part a rationalization of what we were meant to work in the world, what we were meant to be. Those words, that's not psychological language. It's spiritual language. Spiritual language. And, And Jesus says, I have the answer. I have the answer to this. What's the answer? This text is powerful, at least for me, it was very powerful. Um, And the teaching is found in all four books of the Gospels, which means that it's very intentional. Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to get what he's saying here. It must be important. He says, you want to find yourself? Here's how you find yourself. Take up your cross. Die. What does that mean? What does it mean to die? You know, if you die, you lose yourself. Uh, The answer in this passage, it's found very neatly in three parts. Three parts. Um, And uh, as in most parts of the Gospels, uh, usually there's some incident. The incident triggers a teaching. You see that pattern throughout the Gospels, and you see that here in this text. Um, Three parts, and we're going to go to three points. Jesus And his praise of Peter, you see that in verses 13 to 20. Then Jesus and his rebuke of Peter, you see that in verses 21 to 23. That's the incident. And then the teaching that follows, that's verses 24 to 26. His praise of Peter, that's the first part. Uh, Verses 21 to 23, his rebuke of Peter, that's the incident. And then the teaching that follows, verses 24 to 26. First, Jesus' praise of Peter. He begins by asking his disciples, Verse 13, he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond, and they say, well, some say, you know, you're John the Baptist. Other people say you're Elijah. You're one of the prophets, Jeremiah. And that's what they say in verse 14. And Jesus then asks, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That's verse 15. Peter, he says something incredibly remarkable. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Verse 16, that's what he says. And Jesus, Jesus praises him. Jesus praises Peter. He says, on this rock, your name is Peter. The Greek word is rock, Petra. Your name is Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Amazing praise there. What is Peter saying? Peter says, wait a minute. I know other people say that you're a prophet like Elijah, like Moses, like Jeremiah. 
but you're not just a prophet. You can't just be a prophet. All the prophets, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, even John the Baptist, they pointed ahead to a day of salvation. You're always pointing to yourself. All the prophets teach, and when they teach, they say, declares the Lord, thus saith the Lord. But that's not what you say. You always say, truly, truly, I say to you. I'm telling you the truth. I tell you the truth. In those days, rabbis would teach. They'd teach sitting down. Everybody, their disciples would stand around them, and as they're teaching, they would say something, and then they would let everybody who's standing around listen to what they're saying, verify and validate what they're saying, and they would respond. The people would sit around and say, amen. In other words, I declare that this is true. And yet here, Jesus, he says, he starts out with amen. He says, I tell you the truth. In other words, I'm taking your authority away to actually validate what I have to say because what I'm saying is true truth. You know, truly, truly, I say unto you. So you're very, very different. You're completely different than other prophets, very different than other teachers, other rabbis. You don't need validation. Other prophets, they point to the truth. You say, I am the truth. Other prophets point to the way. You say, I am the way. You say, no man comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. Peter's confession, incredibly remarkable. And Jesus blesses Peter. He blesses Peter. Verses 17 to 20. He, sa- he blesses him. He says, you know, what you've learned, what you're saying right now, it can only come from God. It can only come from my Father in heaven. Now, Roman Catholics and Protestants, they disagree particularly on this set of verses right here. On this rock I will build my church. You know, but whether you come from a Roman Catholic background or from a Protestant background, both of them, it doesn't matter because both of them agree on this one truth, that if you do not understand, if you don't agree with what Peter is saying right here, his confession on the true identity of Jesus, you do not have a foundational faith of a Christian. You don't have a foundational faith of a Christian. What do I mean by that? Every other religion, a leader says, salvation, you want salvation? Here's how you get it. You got to do And you've got to follow this series of steps or these laws or these rules. But Jesus is the only leader that says salvation is not through striving but through receiving. I strove. I came and I strove so that you can receive. And until you get that, until you understand that, you're not in the church. You're not a Christian. You could have grown up in the church all your life, but until you get that, you are not a Christian. What Peter said, it's the constitution, it's the article on which every human being, every Christian in the church rises and falls. That's what he says. Jesus is praise of Peter. It's one of the most remarkable praises that he would ever set to anybody while he was on earth. And it reveals who he is, what his real identity is. Now, the second point. Immediately after this, it says in the next verse, from that time, meaning immediately after, and that time including, Jesus starts to go, and, well, he rebukes Peter in this passage, in this series of verses, 21 to 23, and it's interesting because, you know, when when he's talking to morally outcast people, socially marginalized people, the poor people, the prostitutes, you know, uh, the sick, he always calls them friend. He always calls them daughter. He always says that. To religious people, To teachers of the law, he's much harsher. He's much more direct. He calls them hypocrites at times. But never in all the Gospels does he ever utter 
what he utters to Peter here in this passage. He virtually, I mean, he almost curses Peter. He calls him Satan. That's incredibly, I mean, incredibly harsh. Moments after, uh, he just uttered the most uh, impressive praise that anybody could ever receive. So what, you know, it's very intentional. And you know, notice he does this in public. You know, if you have something bad or mean that you need to say to somebody, what do you usually do? You pull them aside. And Jesus is no less wise. He normally pulls you aside. He tells you in private. But here, in full public view, Jesus approaches Peter and he, and he curses him. In public, he intends for all of us to see this. He intends for all of us to understand and understand the meaning of this. What's going on here? Peter says, you are the son of the living God. Peter's referencing the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7 of the Old Testament, it says the son of man will come on, his cl- on the clouds with the angels of God. That's what he says. And Jesus affirms that. In fact, Jesus in verse uh, 27, he references that very verse. Chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 13. That the son of God will come, the son of man will come on the clouds, descend with the angels of God. So there's this interplay there and they're in full agreement there. But then what happens from that time on, verse 21, Jesus goes on and tells him, here's how I'm going to redeem the world. Here's my game plan for restoring the world. And what does he say? Here's how I'm going to defeat evil. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be tortured. And then I'm going to die. That's what he says. My game plan for defeating evil is not through strength, but through weakness. Not through power, but through surrender. And Peter, you know, he, you know, Peter, he doesn't get it. Jesus right now is connecting two very, very different prophecies. Peter understands the prophecy of the son of the God, the son of man that's going to come and redeem the world. Peter gets that part. But what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting a very, very different prophecy, one that every Jew, every Hebrew understood and knew. In fact, they saw it as two different people. In the books of the Psalms, in the chapters in Psalms, you see the Son of Man. You see the Son of the living God, beautiful, majestic, powerful, glorious. But in the books of Isaiah, in the books of prophecy like Isaiah, you see the suffering servant, one who's going to come and he's going to be rejected, one who's going to be oppressed. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53, he's going to be oppressed. He's going to be stricken. He's going to be outcast. He's going to be cut off from the land of the living, it says. He's going to be led like a lamb to slaughter. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, on one hand, you're right, I am the son of man. Chapter 7 of, of Daniel, I'm going to come down on the, on, the, on the clouds with the angels. But I'm going to come and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be tortured and I'm going to die. He's connecting the glory of God with the suffering, the suffering servanthood of God. And he's saying that they're the same people. And Peter doesn't get it. Peter doesn't get it. So what's happening here? Peter hears this. And Peter says, no, I cannot let this happen to you. This will never happen to you. And Jesus calls him Satan. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. The actual Greek word there, he says, you are a temptation for me. Verse 23, why does he say that? Here's why he says it. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Satan tempts him three times. The first temptation, 
self-satisfaction. Turn these stones to bread. The second temptation, it was if you jump off this high place, angels will come and lift you up so that your heel doesn't even strike the ground, he says. It was for protection, self-preservation. The third temptation, he takes him to a high, high place, and he says, I will give all these things to you if you'll just bow down to me. And, and what is that? Self-fulfillment. Those three temptations, satisfaction, preservation, fulfillment. Would Jesus, should Jesus come to those temptations? It would have been at all of our cost. There would be no redemption for man. Jesus would have achieved all those things without ever having to go to the cross. He would, uh, he would acquire all those things and never have to suffer. That's what Satan is tempting him to have. And Peter, Peter here, that's what he's saying. He says, I cannot let you suffer. And Jesus says, no. You have to let me suffer. You are tempting me to not suffer, to get all these things, just as Satan had tempted me to get these things. That's what you're tempting me to do. I can't let you. You are a stumbling block for me. You are a temptation for me. You are Satan. To become king without suffering, without ever going to the cross. Don't try. In other words, what he's saying is don't try to fit me into your idea of greatness. Don't try to fit me into your idea of greatness. Your idea of greatness. There's no room for suffering. Your idea of greatness, there's no, there's no room for, for trouble. There's no room for, for struggle. There's no room for grief. There's no room for discomfort or uncertainty or pain. You're not thinking about the things of God, but you're thinking about the things of men. That's what he says. The way to victory, he says, is through defeat. The way to greatness, the way up, is down. The way to fill yourself is first by emptying yourself. That's what Jesus says. That the way to true greatness is through humility. Through humility. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die because the kingdom is going to advance through my suffering and through my humiliation and through my pain. He didn't, you know, he didn't say, he didn't say, I went to the cross so you'll never get a cross. That's the mark of immaturity. That's what an immature believer, that's what an immature Christian says. Christian immaturity looks like this. Jesus died so that really bad things can't happen to me. Or Jesus died so that I won't do bad things anymore. That's Christian immaturity. And you know how that looks? Tremendous guilt. Or tremendous resentment. Guilt because I can't believe I did these bad things. I didn't know I was capable of doing these kind of things. Or resentment. I didn't know that these kind of things would happen in my life. My life was not supposed to turn out like this. That's immaturity as a Christian. That's Christian immaturity. Think of it this way. This way. If the kingdom of God advanced through Jesus' suffering, Jesus' humiliation, Jesus' pain, then surely it would advance through your suffering, through your humiliation at times, through your pain, wouldn't it? It would happen through God's own son and we're considered God's children. We are God's children. Then surely it would happen through us as his children. The essence of Christian maturity is to understand that if the kingdom of God advances through Jesus' suffering and pain, it would advance through our suffering and pain and through our sacrifice. Do you understand that? Do you get that? Because if you do, then you're growing. Then you will be prepared to find who you really are. And so the last part of this is the teaching. The first part was the praise. The praise revealed Jesus' identity. Peter confessed who Jesus really was. Do you get who he is? Do you get that? But the second part of it was uh, Jesus' rebuke of Peter. And it shows us that we need to suffer. We will suffer. There are going to be times of pain. And the mark of maturity is not that you're suffering. You don't look for suffering. But when you suffer, 
You recognize that the kingdom advances through your suffering and pain just as it advanced through Jesus' suffering and pain. Then you'll be prepared to find who you really are. And that's the last part, the teaching. How does our suffering, how does our pain, because Jesus says, follow me. He says, you want to find yourself? Take up your cross. Just like I suffered, you suffer, and you follow me. That's what he says. Follow me. That's his teaching. How does this, how does our suffering, how does our pain and our struggles help us to find our true identity? In our, in our world today, we're averse, by the way, to suffering in our world. Um, there are two distinct ways that we try to define ourselves. David Brooks, um, one of my favorite books, I read it about 10 years ago. Um, he is an NPR commentator, and uh, he actually is a resident of Philadelphia. He lived uh, outside of Philadelphia in Wayne, uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, he's a New York Times correspondent. He wrote for the New York Times. Uh, he wrote for the New Yorker, the NPR uh, commentator. He wrote a, a, a famous book called Bobos in Paradise. He was chronicling how today's wealthy people live. Because the wealthy people is a younger generation of people. Nowadays, we get a lot of younger people are getting wealthy, especially during his time. And so he wrote um, pretty much in the 90s, how do these people live? How do Generation X people live today? And this is what he writes. And you know, he's, he's reflecting on picking up the New York Times, the wedding column, and reading the wedding column. This is what he writes. When America had a pedigreed elite, the page, the New York Times, the wedding page, emphasized noble birth and breeding. But in America today, it's genius and geniality that enable you to join the elect. And when you look at the Times wedding page, you can almost feel the force of the mingling SAT scores. It's Dartmouth marries Berkeley, MBA weds PhD, Fulbright hitches with Rhodes. Summa cum laude embraces summa cum laude. You rarely see a summa settling for a magna. The tension in such a marriage would be too great. The Times emphasizes four things about a person. College degrees, graduate degrees, career path, parents' profession. And for these are the markers of upscale Americans today. The Times wedding page didn't always pulse with the accomplishments of the resume gods. In the late 1950s, the page rejected a calm and more stately ethos. The wedding accounts of that era didn't emphasize jobs or advanced degrees. The profession of the groom was only sometimes mentioned while the profession of the bride was almost never listed. And on, on the rare occasions when the bride's profession was noted, it was in the past tense, as if the marriage would obviously end her career. Instead, the times listed pedigree and connections. <clears throat> the first way to define ourselves in our world is what we call the traditional, the 1950s, according to David Brooks, the traditional, or what we call the Eastern approach today, and that's through family, through responsibility, through um, loyalty, through duty. Duty is the, is the means by which we uphold family and status. Decisions are never your own. In an Eastern world, decisions are never your own. In essence, in order to find yourself, you have to completely lose yourself. Lose yourself in your community. Lose yourself in your family. Lose yourself to duty. That's what it says. The second approach is what we call the modern approach. The modern, or we would some call the Western approach, and that is through self-discovery, through self-finding, through finding yourself. Remember the movie Sabrina? It was a movie that was made a long time ago. It was made twice, actually. Um, there was a, an older version, but if you watched the more recent version in the 90s with Harrison Ford, Julia Ormond, um, 
know, this unattractive, naive, uh, lower-class teenager actually runs off to Paris, studies in Paris. And in Paris, what does she discover? The arts, the culture of the times, her calling in life, and she experiences love. And she says what? Her famous phrase in that movie, I found myself in Paris. The traditional approach is to lose yourself. To lose yourself, duty. The modern approach is to find yourself, desires. So you either lose yourself or you find yourself. You succumb to duty or you succumb to your desires. Jesus says, I want you to have an identity. I want you to find yourself. I want you to know yourself, but not apart from me. In fact, you will never know. You will always be lacking. You will always be running around in circles. If you're trying to find yourself through duty or through desires, you will always be unhappy, he says, unless you find yourself in me. I want you to have an identity, but I want you to find yourself in me. I want you to find yourself through me. That's what he says. Verse 24, if anyone would come after me, he must first lose himself. He must first deny himself. Then he must take up his cross and follow me. He says, look at the cross. I want you to first deny yourself. Then I want you to look at the cross and let that shape everything you do. Let that shape everything you believe. Let that shape everything you think. And it's going to shape and change. And then you're going to find joy. Then you're going to really, you know why? Because you really connected with who you really are. How do you do that? Now, on one hand, he doesn't say, I want you to deny yourself. I want you to just die. He doesn't say that because then you would have completely lost yourself for good. He also doesn't say, I suffered so that you would never suffer again. That's the key to finding yourself. That's not what he says either. He says, when you suffer, when you suffer for me, I want you to suffer for me. Then when you suffer, you will become more like me. That's what it means to follow after. That's what it means to become my disciple. When you suffer as a Christian, he says, then you will connect with what it means to advance the kingdom of God in yourself and in other people. Only then you'll realize that Jesus, you know, who Jesus is, what he really did for you. That he took care of the real guilt. Until you realize that Jesus took care of your guilt, that he took care of your condemnation, that he took care of the ultimate suffering, then and only then will you really find yourself. He says, I want you to lose yourself and then follow me. And then you're going to develop a strong identity. How do you do that? First, and here we go. This is the progression, okay? First, he says, stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to save yourself because we're all, throughout the week, pressured to save ourselves. Notice, he says, whoever saves his life, okay, whoever tries to save himself, will do what? Will lose his life. The very thing you're trying to do is save yourself, find yourself. But if you do that by trying to save yourself, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose your life. But he says, whoever loses his life for me will find it. That's what he says. Now, why does he use that progression? Normally, okay, if you're trying to look at things mirror image, he says, if you whoever saves his life will lose it, whoever loses his life will, will save it. That's not what he says. He says, whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. That's how you find yourself. He says, stop trying to save yourself. That word psyche, identity, appears again. He says, stop trying to save yourself. Lose your life for me and then you're going to find it. Stop relying on your own goodness. Stop relying on your own achievements. Stop relying on your own uh, 
accomplishments to be acceptable to God. You no longer need to do that. You no longer need to do that to feed every impulse, to save yourself. Every single time you feel insecure, what do you do? Most of us, including myself, when I'm in an area where I feel insecure, my first impulse is what? To try to say something or do something to cover over my flaws. That's natural. Jesus here says the supernatural thing to do is to stop doing that. That's going to make you feel very, very weak. That's the next thing. To find yourself, you have to know who you are. You know why you feel weak? Because those things touch on the very depth of who you are. The inadequacies, the fears, the areas where you know the truth about yourself. And and we don't like to go there, so we constantly try to pile on resume things that are going to help us to feel better about ourselves. And the way we try to solidify that is to step on other people who are lower than us in resume or in appearance or in pedigree or in connections or abilities or accomplishments or even our moral quality. We try to do that all the time. But he says, rather than doing that, true growth is not strength upon strength, building the resume. True, true growth is to go weaker into weakness, to go against that impulse. You know what true growth is? When someone accuses you of something you did not do and to be able to resolve and say, you know what, I'll take it. That is impossible naturally to do. True growth is to be, when someone accuses you and rather than coming back and saying, well, you know what, what about you? But stopping and saying, that's true. That's actually true. And if it's not true, I'm definitely capable. I may have done that. I would consider the possibility of that. That's growth. It makes you feel weak. It makes you feel low. And yet he says, the key to greatness is lowness. The key to becoming like me is to suffer like me, is to become weak like me. Victory happens through defeat, through weakness. When you look to the cross, <clears throat> it takes tremendous courage, a courage that you do not have naturally, to be able to see how sinful and broken your life is. It's easy. It's natural. It takes a lot more shallowness to be able to put something to cover over your flaws. It's very easy to do that. Every one of us does that. <laughs> you know, Chris Rock um, he, I, I find him to be a social commentator. We all see him as a comedian. Chris Rock used to say, you know, it's hard being black. He says, because nobody wants to be black. He says, there is a busboy in this crowd with one leg who would rather ride the white thing out than trade places with me. And I'm rich. That's what he says. You know, because what he's saying is, we all have something that we have to cover over our flaws. Every one of us has something, and we have a series of things, a series of games that we play, and we, it's like roulette. You have to pick and choose depending on the situation. We all do that. When you look to the cross, it takes a certain kind of strength. You know what it takes? To be able to look at your weakness and to be able to stay there. That's humility. You know what you do when you look at the cross? It takes a certain kind of weakness, a certain kind of strength to be able to do that. 
It takes knowing how embraced you are by the Father and to embrace that as ultimate truth in your life. To take that truth, to know how loved you are, to know how already accepted you are, to know how much God embraces you. You take that truth and to be able to embrace that as reality in your life and to let that shape then how you view yourself. That's a strength we do not have naturally. If we had it naturally, Jesus would never have been needed. That's what he came for. That's what he died for. He says it takes that kind of... He says if you want to become great, you have to become weak. That's what he says. Now, it's going to make you feel weaker. It's going to make you feel lower. But you know what goes away? The blame shifting goes away. The excuse making goes away. The lies go away. You start to be you. You start to be who you really are. And let's go on further. What happens then is when you, when you grow in that kind of humility, you become very, very free of what others think of you. You become very, very free of other pressures around you. The Eastern world is the pressure of family. The Western world, you've traded in your family only to come into a different community. Your family becomes your working world. Your family becomes society. And you're letting lots of, both sides, it's the same thing because you're letting the world define who you have to be and you can become resentful or you become over-adapted to both. That's going to make you grow insecure, and, you know, afraid, fearful. He, he says, the more you grow in humility, what happens is you become very, very free of all those voices that try to speak into your life. And only one voice rings true. Is Jesus saying you are utterly loved? You are utterly embraced. You are utterly acceptable to me. You are perfect to me. That's the voice. If you, you would only be able to go that far deep if you understand how high Jesus has placed you. Jesus says, verse 26, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? What he's saying is this. Our careers, our wealth, our achievements, our status, our pedigrees, our reputations, we're always striving. We're always striving for these things. In other words, you're under control. You're under the influence of these things every day in our lives. Think about this way. A man who's making $500,000 a year, he places his self-worth in $500,000 a year. He's going to feel low Two ways. One, if he meets somebody and if he's surrounded by people who make a million dollars a year. That's going to make him feel low. You look at that and you say, but he's making $500,000 a year. You know why? Because you feel lower than him. He's going to feel low if he's around people who are making more than him or if he loses his $500,000 a year. That's going to devastate his life. The man who tries to find himself will lose himself. But he says, but if you deny yourself, it doesn't mean give up your salary. But if you deny himself, to deny yourself is to say, these things are no longer going to control my life. What other people think of me, who loves me, who accepts me, who says you're worthy, the moment I get rid of these voices in my life and see who I really am, then I'm beginning to find myself. Those things will no longer define me. Those things have no longer any influence in my life. Jesus says, what I pay to have you, 
What I gave up to have you, what I lost, what I exchanged to have you, let that be your worth. Then you can look at these things and you can say, you know, these things are good things in my life, but they no longer own me. They are not my life. They don't define me. They are not who I am. They are not my psyche. How do you do that? When suffering happens, you know, that's, that's how you do it. <laughs> when suffering happens. When trouble comes into your life, that's when you realize. Because when trouble, the very essence of trouble is what? Something has come into your life and it's pulled the cord out of your energy source. You have no more strength. You drop to the ground. That's suffering. We've all probably had, at least sentimentally, some sort of experience like that in our lives. And some of us may be going through stuff like that. When the rug gets pulled underneath you, when the cord gets pulled from you, and your energy is gone, when trouble enters your life, and it could just be an insecurity that's nagging, that's trouble. That's how you start to realize that you're losing yourself to gain the world. And now you've lost the world and you've lost yourself. That's why we're on the ground. But the moment we do that, you know what that is? That's the Lord speaking into our lives saying, now will you deny these things for me so that you can gain the world? So you can gain everything you need? I've given you everything you need. When you're suffering, you can remember Jesus. Look to the cross. Look to the cross and remember Jesus. When you look to the cross, you see several things. You can't save yourself. When you look to the cross, you see who you really are. It's your sin. It's our sin. It's our flaws. It's our fears. It's our insecurities. It's everything that's wrong and broken in our lives, everything that's wrong and broken in our world. And that's what put Jesus on the cross. When you see Jesus on the cross, that's when you see who you really are. And that's how you become free. You can become free from the control of other things in your life. Because when you look to the cross, you see what Jesus gained in exchange for his soul. He gained you. You know, Jesus didn't risk his life. He didn't just risk his life for your soul. He gave up his life for your soul. He didn't just exchange his life on the cross, he exchanged, you know, he didn't, he didn't just get on the cross and say, oh, I'm in pain, I'm in pain, my body, look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my head, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding. That's not what Jesus did on the cross. On the cross, he uttered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this, you are my world. God is my life. I have given everything for my life and now I've lost my life. I've lost my soul. For what? For you. To gain you. To gain us. So that we would have identity. So that we could be found in him. That's what he's saying. Jesus on the cross, he lost his job. Jesus on the cross, he lost his status. He was the son, and he became the servant. Jesus, on the cross, he lost his position, and ultimately he lost his identity in exchange for our souls. On the cross, he sacrificed his entire soul, his identity, his psyche. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? I've lost my identity. The Trinity was torn apart and lost its soul. God himself lost his identity when Jesus was on the cross so that we would have an identity. The Trinity, the three members of the Godhead, had lost themselves so that we could have ourselves, who we really are. Do you get that? You have to take that truth and you have to plunge into that truth. And when you look at Jesus' suffering on the cross, that's how you see who you really are. 
you begin to see how messed up we are, how sinful, how weak, how powerless to sin we are, how ugly in sin we are. And when you can do that, that you see that your works can't save you. This is who we really are. And then you see how perfect he is, and you see how righteous he is, and how beautiful he is, and how majestic he is, and how imperfect you are. And then he suffered the ultimate suffering, so you would never have to suffer the ultimate suffering ever again for you. That's how loved you are. That's how accepted you are. That's how approved you already are in Christ. That's your redeemed identity in Christ. When you are humbled by the gospel, amazing things happen. No longer controlled by the world. That's how Christians have done amazing things throughout history. You know, you say, how could they have done those amazing things? But look at the disciples. Who were they? They all abandoned Christ at the crucifixion. We abandoned Jesus every day. How do we do amazing things? It's because we found ourselves. It's because they found themselves. You grow a heart for the needy, even though they're going to impose on you, even though they're thankless, even though they're immature. You know, when people come over my house, my house is a mess every single time. I'm like, I should work in a hotel because I know how to make a couch. I know how to clean a bathroom. And that's every day somebody comes over or a group of people come over. And they're never going to thank you for it. They're not going to thank you and say, I love the way you clean that toilet for me. They're not going to do that. You know, they're going to come and mess up the toilet again. You know? And the thing is, they're suffering. They're suffering. You know? And yet you have the strength to do that. You'll be able to serve the community. It's going to be uncomfortable because you're going to meet people you don't like, you never hung out with before. They're not going to be thankful. And it's going to be expensive. And yet, and that's going to be suffering. You're going to learn to trust people. People you never would have trusted. Some of you right now are in community groups. And in your life, you never would have connected with these people ever before in your life until you came here. What's happening? Something supernatural. It takes a certain level of humility and an experience of mercy and a need for mercy to know that, wow, the Lord is doing amazing things through this. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. It's suffering. It's suffering to do that. You're coming out of your comfort zone. And yet God does amazing things. He's advancing the kingdom through you and in you into other people. Right now, many of us are suffering. We're saying, God has let me down or I must have let God down. And you're still thinking like God is uh, some Eastern family member. You know, he's got rules for you and you got to lose yourself uh, and, 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 become, and become a part, assimilate into his culture. And that's not what's going on. God didn't let you down. He has ultimate hope for you. He's lost everything so that the kingdom can advance in you. Think about that. He's lost everything. He gave up the entire kingdom so that your life can move forward with him. And if that's the case, you know, think about Jesus. If God would advance the kingdom through Jesus and his suffering, surely, Surely he has intent for you in your suffering. Let that challenge your guilt. Let that challenge you in your fears. Let that challenge you in your suffering, in your immediate suffering and in the long-term suffering that you see. Let that challenge you. The Lord is working powerfully in that. Let it challenge your fears. You know, a lot of times we say, you know, gosh, I was so stupid. I made so many mistakes. And you become resentful. But you know what? Even that resentfulness, even that bitterness is against God because you're saying, God, this is not how it was supposed to be. How could you have let me make these mistakes? That's what you're saying. God didn't give up on you. God didn't give up on you. He's remaking you. He is reshaping you. He's challenging you. 
Don't come to Jesus to use him to fulfill all of your dreams. He's got bigger dreams. You come to Jesus, surrender those dreams, deny yourself for him. And he will take you. I, I mean this. I'm, I think I'm at a decent age now where I can say, trust me on this. He will take you places. He will take you places. You probably didn't realize he was going to take you to these places. But he will take you to places and you will experience amazing resolve, amazing strength, strength you never thought you had to do those things, to be those things. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray.